Habakkuk. And again, like I said last week, if you can find it, it's located toward the end of the Old Testament in the midst of several what we call the minor prophets, little short uh, prophets. Before I go further, it's going to be my, my plan to leave this service rather immediately. I used to do that years ago. It was 6 to 7, 7 o'clock, I was out of here. Because I have a four-hour drive home. So I want to take advantage of the, the sunlight as much as I can. And uh, So if ever you have something important you have to tell me, try to tell me before the service and not try to grab me at the back there and we get into a long theological discussion of some kind. It'll take 15 minutes or whatever. So you see me, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll walk slowly, okay? Okay, you got to talk to me. But once I hit that door, I'm on my way back to Mifford. But I'll look forward to seeing you again next week. Habakkuk, we're going to be picking it up at verse 12 of the first chapter. And we started with a big word, theodicy. Theodicy is the defense of God's wisdom and omnipotence in the face of so much evil in the world. If God is so great and so good, why doesn't he take care of these problems? And that was the situation with Habakkuk, the prophet in his day, around 600 years before Christ, 600 B.C., and Habakkuk was a prophet who looked at his nation of Judah and saw injustice, lawlessness, evil, wickedness, idolatry, all kinds of things, and the people didn't seem to care. Other prophets had been raised up to raise the cry, you know, trouble is coming. God's going to punish you if you disobey Him. And yet they went on their merry way. And so he brought the matter to the Lord in the first verses of this chapter. Lord, how long is this going to go on? Finally, the Lord answered him. All right, uh, Habakkuk, I'm ready to give him my answer. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And they're going to come in and punish people of Judah for their sin. And of course, Habakkuk said, well, that doesn't make sense. Lord, the Babylonians, we're bad enough, but the Babylonians are worse. Why are you bringing in this pagan nation to punish us? And so that little dialogue went on and on for a little bit. And uh, the Lord said, this is what's going to happen. And he described what it's going to be like. The Babylonians were a very cruel people, a very strong military people. And they were going to be coming into Judah and wreak, wreak havoc upon the nation. Habakkuk is one of the prophets trying to warn the people, this is coming, this is coming. But he didn't think it would be like this with the Babylonians coming in so, so harsh. <coughs> Excuse me. So he can't fully understand God's ways, and he, but he wants to press his questions further. But how does he get a handle on this problem? Well, we find the answer to that in verse 12 of the first chapter of Habakkuk. He takes his matter to the Lord. He focuses upon who God is, and what he's like. Now, this is a rather compressed way he does it in verse 12, but we had noticed four things. First of all, he, he's trying to figure out, what do I know about the Lord? Well, one thing I know is he is eternal. Are you not from everlasting? He knew that God was outside the flux of history, unlike the pagan gods, who are only man-made idols of human time. But God is far above the Babylonians, Back up in verses 10 and 11, they scoff at kings and rulers, but they can't scoff at the true Lord, great king. The Lord had said to Moses, I am that I am. I've always been, I always will be. I'm the eternal God. 
And so he took comfort in that. He said, oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. So he realized they're not going to be extinguished. Judah's not going to go away completely, but they are going to be punished. The second thing he knew about God was that God is holy. Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, completely self-existent from his creation, pure and righteous beyond the stain of any evil in himself. There may be a lot of evil in Judah, but not with the Lord himself. Holy, holy, holy was the vision that Isaiah had of the greatness of God. And so in Habakkuk's day, he realized that God was eternal, God was holy, and God was, much, was very much sovereign, controlling all of history. And the Lord would raise up the Babylonians when he determined to do it, and in the geographical area, which he determined to do, which apparently was going to be Judah itself. And then the fourth thing that he learned about God, as he thought about him, was God is faithful. I was faithful. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, your sovereign. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Rock, a firm foundation for his people. So we shall not die. At times, God may seem far away, but I just have to remember He's true to His covenant promises. So that was kind of a starting point for Habakkuk dealing with this, this problem of evil and how God related to it. Let's pause just for a moment and realize that our Savior Jesus went through many of these why questions Himself as He approached the cross. He knew that the Father could deliver Him from the Jews and the Romans. He knew that He could call down 12 legions of angels. All He had to do is give the word. But he knew that he was being made sin for his people. He was becoming more and more identified with your sin and my sin as he approached the cross. And so our sins had to be punished in his body in a very public way. And this would mean separation from his father, from the sense of the father's presence. And we know that he experienced that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? The Lord asked that why question. Why is this happening? But thankfully, Jesus went on, confident of his Father's will, despite the seeming victory of evil coming upon him. Now back to our text. After affirming what he knows for certain about God, no injustice with God, he can't see evil without hating it. I realize that. But Habakkuk still has some questions related to the divine attributes and regarding the triumph of the godless invader coming into Judah. Why is this happening? By the way, parenthetically, notice how the problem of evil, which has to do with theodicy, the problem of evil, how come there's so much evil in the world, God is good, all-powerful. Notice how it's set in a historical context. It takes place in a historical context. So it's not something just for um, people in the church just to talk about, but this is something happening in our events of our life right now, going on with Russia and China and Iran and the other nations of the world. Verses 14 and 15, well, it's in verse 13, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So Habakkuk is still struggling with this problem. He's taken it to the Lord. He recognizes who God is. 
but that even makes it more difficult for back to deal with. If God is this wonderful, eternal, and holy, and sovereign, and faithful, why is this going on here? Why does he seemingly idly look on and doesn't do anything about it? Verses 14 and 15. Lord, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, that is the fisherman. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. To Habakkuk, men are like fish with no ruler. They're wide open to the treacherous and the wicked. They are at the mercy of the hook and especially the net. When we think of fishermen in New Testament times and Old Testament times, we usually think, well, we're used to a, a rod, you know, and you clip it out like that, with a hook on the end of it. But most fishing was done around with, with nets, large nets that would take hauls of fish in. And that's the primary imagery here, I believe, that we have here. Um, their net is their God. Look at verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices, talking about the Babylonians now, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Now, the North American Indians, some of them, they worshipped the bow and arrow. It, was, it became a god to them, because that's how they defended themselves and conquered their enemies. Today we know Russia and North Korea, among other nations, proudly display their armaments, and they have these big parades with all their tanks and rockets and so on. That's their idol. They worship their military might. And, of course, in the United States, we have to be careful we don't worship it. We can appreciate what we have, but let's not worship it. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I've heard about the Babylonians and the conquest they've had. They've already conquered the Assyrians, and now they're heading our way. Is this net just going to keep being thrown out and people are going to be dragged into it by the Babylonians? Something else to ponder as we pause here. Why does God tolerate bad things we see others doing? Well, perhaps for the same reason, he tolerates bad things that you and I do. Let's bring it down from the nations to our lives. He tolerates us for quite a while. He puts up with us. He's very long-suffering for our lives when we think of all that we do. And regarding our nation, why shouldn't the Lord judge our nation? Look how far our nation has turned away from the things of the Lord. Why should we not experience some terrible, horrendous, horrible invasion of some kind or a plague or whatever? We pray that God will not bring that. We plead for His mercy to, to remember the founding of our country and the, and the people who are praying for our nation and our, in our world, in our nation. But who knows what's going to happen? The time might come when we say, Lord, why, why are you doing this to us? We're a Christian nation. We're good people here. Well, there's a lot of evil going on in our nation as well. So that brings us then to the second chapter. And the first three verses, we find Habakkuk waiting. Waiting, not waiting, waiting. Let me look at those verses. Let me read them to you. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Habakkuk has gone as far as he can with his reasoning, his questioning. He still doesn't have all the answers. He needs more instruction. So what's he do? He's going to fully commit this problem to God himself. We have the illustration of him going up at a watch post or a a station on a tower. This could have been a tower where uh, farmers would get up to look over their property, see how things were going, if they had animals, to see where the animals were, take a bird's eye view of of their crops and see how things were going that way. It would also be a place where a sentry would be up to look for the enemy coming, give warning to the people to get ready, the enemy is coming. So that's the imagery here. It doesn't mean that Habakkuk literally went out someplace and climbed a literal tower, stood up there like this, and kind of looked around waiting for God to give him some kind of an answer. But the imagery is that he fully gave himself to the Lord. So Lord, I'm going to just wait on you until you give me some more information, some more revelation on this problem I'm dealing with. So for Habakkuk, he is saying to the Lord, I've been down in the valley, and now I've got to get a higher perspective. And so I'm going to come before you, leave my problem with you, wait and see what will happen. Look and see out what he will say to me, is what Habakkuk is saying here. What's the Lord going to say further to alleviate my questions about all this evil in the world and how he's dealing with it? And the implication is that he's not going to leave there until he gets those answers. Here I am. I'm going to wait upon the Lord for him to approach me. There's an interesting phrase there when I was looking this over, preparing this, a little puzzled by it. At the end of verse 1, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What does he mean by that? There are a couple of different answers to that. One is he's concerned Now, he's going to respond when the Lord does answer him. Or his response to God when God reproves him, because Habakkuk has to be thinking, maybe I've gone a little too far here (laughs) confronting God. I'm kind of putting my fist in his face there. Say, Lord, how long are you going to do this? When are you going to do something? And the Lord's probably going to reprove me for that. So I've got to think how I'm going to answer that. That's another possibility. Another possibility what about the people who are going to receive my message? How am I going to deal with them when they complain about that? Because they're going to have the same kind of questions and answers I've had. So those are some possible answers to explain that phrase at the end of verse 1. Carl Armerding wrote this, Habakkuk revealed a mature wisdom in his determination that this response be shaped by what God himself would say. It is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. Now, of course, Habakkuk did not have the full word of God, did he? He received special revelation, supernatural revelation, for what we read in his book here. We have the word of God. 
And so as we wait for the Lord, it's not just kind of waiting for some kind of a feeling, some kind of a, the, the room moving or something like that. And, oh, God's heard me. Or some enlightenment of some sort. The Lord, I think, will bring to our mind Scripture passages, Scripture principles. What was it I heard the pastor say the other day? What was it I was reading yesterday? And then the Lord takes those kinds of things based on His Word and enables us to begin to get some answers of how to deal with questions, with problems, whatever they are. So we need to wait on the Lord at times with our questions and ask God to give us further information, help us to understand the Word better and the principles that we find therein. Just how long Habakkuk waited, we're not told. But finally, the Lord responded to him. God honors those who do wait for him, even if not quickly. What we have in verses 2 and 3 is a prologue to the coming vision that the Lord is going to reveal to Habakkuk in the following verses. Habakkuk, first thing to do is write the vision, make it plain on tablets. These could be uh, tablets of, of stone, something like that, or wood. And there'd be a message put on there, not necessarily every word that we have in our scripture, but at least the general idea of what is being revealed. And then he was to take it down to the marketplace and it'd be posted someplace where people could see it and read it. So the Lord is saying, I want this written down. I want it very plain, make sure it's clear, people can understand what's being said, so that he may run who reads it. So a person can come by rather quickly and, and take a quick glance at that. What does Habakkuk have to say? You know, to read it? Well, I've got to get going here. I've got to pick up some milk at the store or something, so I don't have much time. But at least he can read it real quickly and get some idea of what the message is. So that's what the Lord is telling Habakkuk to do there in verse number 2. Now, what about verse number 3? That uh, is a little different, difficult to deal with here. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. That is the vision I'm about to give you, Habakkuk. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. It almost seems that the Lord's contradicting himself here. He's saying this is going to happen real quickly, but it's going to be kind of slow. Uh, it's going to hasten, but then at the same time, it may not be as quick as you think it is. What's the Lord saying here? Well, there are several things about this vision to come. First of all, it awaits, it has a future fulfillment of some kind. It hastens, so this, things are going to begin to happen quickly with the Babylonians, but it's going to seem slow in human time. People may still question whether this is going to happen or not. They may attack you, Habakkuk, and say, Habakkuk, you don't know what you're talking about, because it seems rather slow. But it's surely going to come, and it's not going to be delayed one moment beyond the time that I determine it's going to come, namely the Babylonian invasion of Judah. Though seeming to linger, in divine time it's going to move right along and happen exactly as God says. And we know that after the Babylonian invasion, invasion of Judah, the, Judah, the Jews were taken captive, many of them, and transported to Babylon. But the Lord had revealed through Jeremiah the prophet especially, for 70 years, it's going to happen, but it's going to be a specific time, and then at the end of the 70 years, 
It's going to be a group that's going to be able to come back to the land. God revealed that information particularly to Jeremiah. There's a verse in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Jesus was born in Bethlehem at just the time that the Lord God determined it would be done. In 2 Peter 3, we read that scoffers are going to come in the last time saying, where is this thing about Christ coming again? You Christians talk about looking for Jesus coming back. Well, where is it? Year after year, decade after decade, we're now in the 21st century. When is it going to be? Later on in that chapter, Peter reminds us that a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. God is not bound by time like we are. So it may seem to linger, but it's in God's hands. And it will happen exactly when He determines it to happen. So we must await the future, overcoming the apparent obstacles to its realization. And that's what Habakkuk needed to learn and to do. So as you get to verses 4 through the end of the chapter, chapter 2, we move in to the judgment on the Babylonians. Remember Habakkuk's problem in question in chapter 1 was, you're going to bring the Babylonians in to punish the Judah? That doesn't seem right. Here he says, Habakkuk, don't worry about that, because you know the people of Judah need to be punished. The curse of the covenant has to come on them. They've disobeyed. But don't worry, the Babylonians are going to get theirs. Judgment's going to come on them too. And that's what he's going to reveal here in the following verses. Now this is a section of, of pronounced woes. I'll, I'll define what a woe is in a moment. Woes and curses, but in the midst of this rather negative passage, there are three wonderful verses. Look at the end of verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. Go down to verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then look at verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. So I'll say a little bit about each of these verses. I'm not sure we'll get to all the way today, but verse 4, 14, and 20. But we'll also look at what's in between there briefly. Verse 4, in particular, is God's answer to the questions raised by Habakkuk in the opening sections of the book. Behold, his soul, that is primarily King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, but also any particular Babylon or just generic Babylonian person. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's arrogant. He's presumptuous. It's like blowing up a balloon. You blow up a balloon, you blow and blow and blow, that thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more puffed up until finally what happens, wham! <laughs> Suddenly it gets to the limit and it bursts and it's over with. Behold, right now his soul's puffed up. It's not upright within him. It's not straight. It's not correct. Now he's going to then 
zero in on the Babylonians, beginning at verse 5. But let's look at the end of verse 4, that wonderful phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith. This was one of the great phrases that meant so much to Martin Luther, time of the Protestant Reformation. When his eyes focused on that, he had read Romans, he had read Galatians, he knew a lot about that. The Lord was working in his heart to help him come to understand justification by faith and, and the need of the righteousness of God, the God-righteousness that Jesus had to receive by faith alone. But one of the things that really triggered him into an understanding of all this was that phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith. Three Hebrew words, the righteous, one Hebrew word, by faith, second word, and the third one, shall live. That's the order in the Hebrew text. The righteous, by faith, shall live. The Hebrew idea of life was not simply uh, living one day to the next, one year, one year after another year, but there's an eternal aspect to it. For the Hebrews, the idea of life is to live for, with the Lord forever. David expressed this so wonderfully in his 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life here on earth, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the idea of life here, I think, in our text. Another thing to notice and I struggled with this. It took me a while to understand what's going on here. And the struggle I had was, I was trying to read too much of the New Testament into the Old Testament text. I was trying to make it say, he that is righteous by faith shall live. But the Hebrew really doesn't say that specifically. Or, he that is justified by faith shall live. No, not quite saying that. Uh, I would understand the words here have more of an ethical significance rather than a doctrinal significance. He's dealing with how the individual, humble, steadfast person puts his trust in the Lord. And by putting his trust in the Lord, the fact that he can do that means that he must be justified. That he must have been declared righteous, even as Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. So, the one envisioned here in verse 4, as I understand it, the righteous person lives by his faith because he has been justified in the sight of God, declared not guilty. The righteous merits of the Christ to come had been applied to him and accounted to him as well. Nevertheless, Paul, for example, keeps the unity of Old Testament and New Testament together in a couple of passages, Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11, where he quotes Habakkuk 3.4. So there's a definite connection there, no doubt about that. Now, of course, Habakkuk did not understand justification by faith the way we do today. We've had many long years and centuries of development of that wonderful teaching, that wonderful truth. Um, Paul would understand that the righteous man of Habakkuk was a justified man, thereby expressing the validity of, of Habakkuk's message. There's an interesting way the word justified is used over in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus gives the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was the one who stood out and said, Lord, I thank you, I'm so good. <laughs> and uh, you've 
Bless me also all kinds of ways. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get and so on and so forth. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't lift his eyes even to heaven, but he beat his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then says at that point, I tell you, this man, the humble man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. So it's an interesting way that Jesus used that word justified in the context of a man who was humble and who was seeking to live his life to the glory of God and rest upon God alone for his trust. What we have here then at the end of verse 4 is the life of the believer in a time of crisis who continues to trust in the Lord. Habakkuk, that's what you got to learn and you have to pass that on to other people That's the righteous man who's going to live by his faith. The Babylonians are going to be destroyed. I'll take care of them. But those who are righteous, I will never let them out of my grip. They need to live by faith. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, The truth stated is that there are only two possible attitudes in this life and this world. That of faith and that of unbelief. Either we view our lives in terms of our belief in God and the conclusions which we are entitled to draw from that, or our outlook is based upon rejection of God and the corresponding denials. We may either withdraw ourselves from the way of faith in God, or else we may live by faith in God. The very terms suggest corresponding ways of life. As a man believes, so is he. A man's belief determines his conduct. And aren't we challenged every day of our life now, especially in the society in which we live, that we see people of the world going one way and we're going the other? Oh, sure, we have certain things in common. We work with them. We live in the same neighborhoods as they do. Uh, we enjoy certain things together. But in terms of worldview, in terms of uh, lifestyle, uh, we're called to either be those of faith and trust in the Lord and His ways and committing our ways to Him, or we begin to lapse into the ways of the world, ways of the Babylonian. And so there's a contrast here in verse 4, the, the puffed-up soul, not upright, and the righteous living by faith. Habakkuk, do you see the difference there? Yes, the Babylonians are coming, but my people need to be righteous people living by faith. That's going to get them through what is about to occur. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The time left here, I want to just jump in a little bit to the sections before us. Um, Verses 5 through 13 bring us to verse 14. And then verses 15 through 19 follow verse 14 before verse 20. So in other words, there's two sections there sandwiched in between verses 4, 14, and 20, these wonderful three verses in this chapter. There are five woes. A woe is the pronouncement of divine retribution by punishment. So when he says woe here, or when Jesus to the Pharisees, woe to you, he's in effect pronouncing a divine retribution. Retribution by punishment upon them that's going to come. Verse 5, 
Talking now about the Babylonians. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The Babylonians were quite intemperate people. They, their arrogance was simply intensified by their desire for greed. The Hebrew says, greedy as the grave. Greedy as the grave. Never enough. All, all through their life, they just keep wanting more and more and more and more until it all collapses into the grave with them. Appetites for more conquest. Restless, never satisfied. If you know anything about the Babylonians, they, they just want more and more and more. Verse 6. Shall not all these... What does that refer to, all these? Well, I think it refers to the nations of verse 5, but also to the righteous of verse 4. Now, why are the righteous involved with this? Well... Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? We know that um, conquered peoples uh, are very dissatisfied with their conquerors. They don't like it, and they look for opportunities to get back at them. And sometimes when those victories come, they, they taunt their enemies. They taunt their former jailers who are controlling them. And so the time is going to come, says the Lord, when these people, the nations that have been conquered by the Babylonians, and even my people will have the opportunity to taunt these people because resentment smolders under the surface of every conquered nation there. They're just waiting for that time to get back at them. That's going to happen, Habakkuk. End of verse 6. Here's the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. Pledges, a banking term. Loading himself with, with debt is the idea there, I think. Um, how long before your debtors call upon you? You're, you're taking their stuff. One of the days they're going to call it in. You're going to have to pay that to the Babylonians is the idea there. So Habakkuk, don't worry about the Babylonians. It seems like they're getting everything, but they really are getting nothing. And it's going to happen very suddenly. Very suddenly it's going to come upon them. Babylonians, Babylon will be seized like a creditor going against his debtor. And that time did come, you know. We read about it in Daniel 5, the night of the handwriting on the wall when the king of Babylon discovered that his kingdom was coming to an end suddenly as the Persians came in that very night and overtook the Babylonians. So let me close here just briefly, verses 9 through 13. Woe to him, let's let me back up here, sorry, to verse uh, 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you, talking out of the Babylonians, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 
covetous, self-assertion, to set his nest on high like, like birds in the nest. And by the way, if you just go back a page or two to the little book of Obadiah, verse 4, it only has one chapter. Obadiah, going the wrong way here. Go back further. Obadiah 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord concerning Edom. And that's, I think, what's being said to Habakkuk here. Verses 11 and 12, for the stones will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Babylonian builders were, was built, were built with slave labor. Slave labor. And as it were, this is a proverbial expression to note the horror of which their cruel oppression was regarded as they took advantage of the slaves to build their towns and their buildings and so forth. And then finally, verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Listen to Jeremiah 51, 58. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground and her high gate shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire fire of judgment. How futile was the work of the Babylonians. All they did was really amounted to nothing. So Habakkuk, be encouraged here. It is true that I'm doing something rather unusual. But may I remind you, verse 14, one day the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I'm doing something more than simply bringing the Babylonians in to punish Judah. In punishing Judah, they're going to be refined. And a group is going to come back. And I still have not forgotten my promise of the Christ. that He's going to come from the tribe of Judah, from the house of David. That will come. So I'm not done with that promise. I'm just coming at it a little different way. You need to trust in me. Remember that the just, a righteous man, shall live by faith. That's what we're called to do in our world, our society today. Keep our trust in the Lord. We don't like a lot of things that are happening in our world, but we just have to realize God is doing something, and either in terms of discipline our nation, sometimes brings things to our lives to discipline us, but we have to, by faith, trust He knows what He's doing. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, how we thank You for Your Word, uh, even the difficult passages in it that uh, cause us a little perplexity. Uh, sometimes we are like Habakkuk. We don't fully understand all that you do and why you do it. Lord, give us the strength we need to keep our trust in you, that we might be righteous people living day by day with faith and trust in your ways. We ask you to dismiss us with your blessing. Watch over us this week. And we look forward to being again with your people next Lord's Day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.